When we heard the sad news of the death of Murray Walker at the age of 97, we felt it was only right to pay tribute to him here on Bring Back V10s. And if we'd been in any doubt, the overwhelming outpouring of love and emotion showed by our audience, plus so many of you asking us to give Murray his own episode, made it a no-brainer. Murray Walker was as much a part of the soundtrack to this glorious era of Formula One as the screaming engines he was so often capable of drowning out with his electrifying commentary. Joining me, Glenn Freeman, to celebrate Murray's life and career are three men who know a thing or two about travelling around the world in the F1 paddock, Mark Hughes, Ed Straw, and I'm delighted to say that we are joined by Motorsport Magazine's Simon Aaron, a man who knew Murray well and worked closely with him on various projects over the years. We will drift away from the traditional Bring Back V10s format a bit as we look back on what made Murray mean so much to all of us and to so many of our listeners, but we will start things off as we always do. So Mark, we'll come to you first, and quite simply, when you think of Murray Walker, what's the first thing that comes to mind? A little anecdote that sort of encapsulates both his his kindness and warmth, but also his self-deprecation, because Murray the person was very aware of Murray the persona, and he would quite happily impersonate himself. And it was it was just it was delightful. And um so yeah, I was um was walking along with um Simon and another colleague, Tony Dodgens, uh back from the track one evening. And um Murray had become uh, very interested in our um motorhome that we we were sharing that year, uh, the three of us. And he'd he'd been asking us all about it. And uh, we were just walking back to the track from the track. And uh, an old S-class Mercedes pulled up alongside, and in the chauffeur-driven, and in the back, the, the window, the back window comes down, and inside there was Murray asking if we wanted a lift, and we said, "No, thanks, Murray. We're, we're nearly there, but but thank you anyway." And so, <laughs> just as um, just as he pulled away, he, he shouts from in inside the car, "And there they go <laughs> to their camper van." <laughs> <laughs> that just makes it more Murray. <laughs> yeah, that's true. But <laughs> there are so many stories like that. You know, another couple of colleagues of ours, um, James Roberts, who we've all worked with in the past, and a photographer Drew Gibson, both told stories of being somewhere with Murray. I think James went underneath a, a barrier at the McLaren factory, and as they went through, Murray shouted "Go, go, go!" And uh, Drew was in a lift with Murray somewhere. And uh, they waited ages for the lift to set off because they were loading it up. And when it finally left, he, he shouted, go, go, go there as well. And somehow he had that magical way to to almost be parodying himself, but in an affectionate way, not in a way that seemed like it was cheesy or he was over-egging it. But Ed, you and Mark had just enough time when the news broke on Saturday to pay a small tribute to Murray in our regular F1 podcast that was looking at F1 testing now a little bit more time has passed. What's standing out for you when you reflect on Murray's contribution to F1? I think it's just the the overall impact he had and the way his voice does accompany the key moments. It's part and parcel of it. I was trying to think about what was the piece of commentary that's most embedded in my mind. And I think, as regular listeners to Bring Back V10s know, I, I was a Damon Hill fan in my youth, in my more formative years. And, and it's the, the end I've got to stop because I've got a lump in my throat. It just perfectly encapsulated the moment, didn't it? The Not just a British world champion, but the son of Graham. 
all of the the British fans watching would have gone on that sort of amazing journey with Damon Hill, and he just encapsulated it perfectly. So I can still picture the car coming across the line on the Suzuka straight with that Murray line, and he had that capacity to just do it perfectly when things happened. And I imagine whether Schumacher was most resonant or Senna or Mance or Freddie, one, everyone will have their own version of that that's just on instant playback in their brain. For me, it's that that he was in the the the, the fabric of the sport both internally and externally. Obviously, for all the fans, he was the voice of Formula One. Um, but within within the paddock, he was just um, such an intrinsic part um, and would be able to talk to anyone and would uh, was totally respected by everyone. Um, and not only respect but um, great fondness. And and so it's, it, it's that what you're... Seeing on the outside was absolutely mirrored um, on the inside. And Simon, thank you so much for joining us. It's, it's great to have you along with us as well. Now, when when we first spoke about you possibly coming on this episode, you said you could talk about Murray for a fortnight. Uh, but to be to begin with, if we have to boil it down to one standout memory to kick things off, whereabouts into the past and your relationship with Murray does your mind instantly wander to? I mean. As a by brief way of intro, I mean the, the thing that I would associate Murray with very with Murray was a very warm and genuine smile, the kind of the jovial figure that you heard and saw on TV and radio was was what what he was. I mean that was it was very there was no act about Murray. He was just a very very genuine guy. Um, I suppose for me there were there were two little things, if I may. Um, one was at a, a dinner just before the Macau Grand Prix in '84. We'd been assigned to the same table, and Murray wanted to just before we started. He said he stood up and said, "I'd like to introduce everybody." And I cringed because I'd met him once two years earlier at Silverstone, very briefly. Although when we met, he treated me as though he'd known me for years rather than seconds. But this was two years beforehand, and he started. I think it was Ross Cheever on my right, and he started with Ross when went the other right way around the table, and I was absolutely convinced that when he got to me, he's going. He was going to go, I'm sorry, I can't remember your name. But <clears throat> in fact, it, when he got round to me, it turned out uh, that he knew more about me than I did. And that was very, I mean, and I saw that in later years as well. You watched him when he was covering lesser events, stuff that wasn't Grand Prix racing, F3 or the Formula Ford Festival. And he'd be going around the paddock with a notebook and he'd be talking to people and making sure that he had a head full of information before he started. But I, I suppose my favourite um Thing would have been, I think it was the 85 Formula Ford Festival that Johnny Herbert won. I lap charted a few festivals for the Bead in the 80s, uh, usually the Tiffany Dell, which is very calm. We'd both sit there, I'd point things out to him, and you know, he'd make a note and bring them into the commentary if he could. Um, but with Murray, I was keeping a lap chart and ducking half the time because he's, you know, he's, he's bouncing around the box. I'm sure Mark and Ed have seen him in action as well, but. You know, literally sort of jumping and pointing to a non-existent audience, um, you know, pointing things out, and you're trying to keep a lap chart, something that this hand comes across the back of your head. And um, he he always stood up because he said it inflated your lungs better. And I think, you know, that came across in his delivery. But for me, just to have the privilege just for one afternoon of being Murray Walker's lap chart was, you know, that's that can't be taken away. Always be very special for me. No, that's that's absolutely right. And there's there's great footage actually of Murray and Martin Brundle in a commentary box for qualifying at Jerez in '97. 
And Murray's doing exactly what you're talking about there. As he's, as he's talking the, the viewers around the lap, I think they're on board with Michael Schumacher. And he is, his arms are waving around as he's describing every corner and what gear Michael's in, what speed he'll be doing. And you can just see Martin having to sort of stand back and, and stay out of the way, exactly what you described there. And Alan McNish shared a great story as well um, about Murray covering a kart race that Alan was in. And he said that morning he was coming around finding out about all the drivers to make sure that even at that level, he knew something about them and had something to say. So, yeah, Murray wasn't just a man who uh, who called the action sort of on the fly, as good as he was at doing that too. I'll pick a piece of commentary for my memory because if I instantly have to think of Murray shouting into a microphone in his brilliant way, I'm transported back to Suzuka 1990, the start of the race, and his brilliant call of, it's happened immediately when Senna takes out Alain Prost. And I think that summed up Murray's way to get across what we were probably all thinking, which was, is Senna going to take Prost out here? But he managed to do it without any sort of hint of cynicism. He managed to convey it really with just just pure enthusiasm and excitement. And I don't think anyone else could really get across that message of this guy's just taken that person out on purpose and we thought it was going to happen. And isn't it amazing and exciting and and yeah, just be to be full of energy. I think that that summed him up. Now we did also ask for our uh, memories from our audience on social media using the hashtag bring back V10s. Thank you to everyone who got in touch and we'll try to share a few now. Five Red Lights says, Murray's voice was so iconic. After he retired, it put such a smile on my face to see him at a Grand Prix, usually Silverstone. I was more excited seeing him than some of the drivers. Stuart Henry says, Murray's calm demeanour during his commentary at Imola 94 will never be forgotten. Not just the commentary, but the live interviews he did on the news in the days after and was a soothing voice of calm to the grieving F1 world. Ben Wood says he was lucky enough to meet Murray at the British Grand Prix in 2006. He was in his 80s, but fit and sharp as someone 20 years younger. What struck me most was that despite all of his other commitments, he was happy to take the time to chat and have a photo. Joe Davey gives us a quote uh, that was his favourite and says, the boot is on the other Schumacher. Paul Dunk says, Suzuka 94 is probably my favourite memory of Murray. We had that epic 3.36 seconds when it was confirmed that Damon Hill had won. And as he started talking about it, Mansell then got past De Lacey at the chicane and Murray let out a scream of pure excitement and passion. I watched that back when I saw this, this message and you can't describe the noise that Murray makes <laughs> when they cut to that pass from Nigel. Um, now, we don't want this to be a, a sombre or sad occasion. Um, you know, this isn't so much an obituary but, uh, or even a full recap of Murray's life. We very much want to celebrate him. And we'd need that fortnight Simon talked about earlier just to scratch the surface. Anyway, we do want to look back fondly on some of the stories and moments that shaped Murray's career. And it feels like there's no better place to start for that than with his iconic partnership with James Hunt. Murray wrote in his book, that he wasn't happy when he learned he was being paired with James. He said at the time he thought Hunt was arrogant, rude, overbearing, drinks too much, and is certainly not my idea of someone with whom I want to share the microphone. And they really did share a microphone back then. That was enforced by their bosses at the BBC to make sure they didn't talk over each other, and it was often a source of tension between them. They'd be fighting over the microphone because, as Murray put it in his words, I thought James slowed things down and he thought I talked too much. But Murray said that over the years they both mellowed, so a relationship that started at arm's length 
was transformed over the 13 years they had together on air until Hunt's sudden death in 1993. But Mark, just looking at Murray and James as a partnership, was that a, an on-screen an on or behind-the-microphone relationship that never should have clicked in the way it did, or were they so opposite that they were always going to have chemistry? I think it worked beautifully exactly because they were so different. Um, so you had Murray painting the picture and, and you know, giving it the drive and, and the, the enthusiasm and paint, painting the atmosphere. And and James just there to interject with um, very calm, you know, very uh, astute observations and bits of information that, that you know, that, that was needed to, to fill in the, the, the picture with a... Um, you know some some insight, uh, so <clears throat> their respective personalities lent lent them that those respective roles brilliant brilliantly well, and it actually you although you could you could hear that um, friction sometimes it 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 worked it was it was actually quite funny it was actually quite amusing and it, it sort of added this sort of odd couple sort of texture to the. To, you know, to the dynamic, and um, you know, especially when when Murray made a mistake, and then and, and James would just point it out whether well, actually Murray, and then and, but then it would just pass over, and it was it was just fantastic. I, I loved that. I thought it was um, a lovely a lovely dynamic. You can see why. Murray will have found James Hunt frustrating, though, because Simon was talking about how professional Murray Walker was, the effort he would go to wander around the paddock, want to have something to say about everything, even the person who might be, I don't know, six in the B final of a minor rally cross event or something. So he actually had something to offer, whereas Hunt was relying on a slightly different way, way of doing things. But I think the thing that most encapsulates it is that it's the famous Monaco Grand Prix, the Arnoux comment, isn't it? Where Murray Walker talks about how Arnoux says the reason he's going slower these days is he's not used to normally aspirated engines. And then, of course, you have James Hunt's uh, to the point uh, comment where he just says it says it's bullshit and then you just hear that pause from Murray Walker and he just goes straight back into and and it just encapsulates it's not only just a wonderful moment to listen to it but it's a great moment because it just sums up that relationship and it worked brilliantly because we're still talking about that moment decades later yeah I do remember talking of the difference in professionalism I do remember one year when the Belgian Grand Prix clashed with the Birmingham Super Prix which I was covering and James Hunt who should, should have been commentating in Spa was for some reason in the paddock in Birmingham, which uh, none, of, none of us could quite understand. I think, I think it was just one of those days just didn't, just didn't show up. But um, like, like the others, I mean, I, I loved the, uh, I thought the contrast in styles was just uh, wonderfully complimentary. It's fantastic. It's interesting you mentioned that Belgian Grand Prix where James was missing because uh, Murray wrote in his book that when he asked James where he was, James said he was ill in bed in his hotel. Um, so not quite Birmingham. His hotel was in Birmingham. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yes. <laughs> yeah. I'm pretty sure I saw him in the paddock. Yeah, I think I'd take your word over whatever James was spinning to Murray at the time. Uh, Ed... Well, he was, he, was, he was working for one of the tobacco sponsors as a driver advisor at the time, and I have a feeling they were probably paying in more than the bees did. So, you know. Yeah, there's a few stories about that in Murray's book as well, where uh, they could they could have got a few deals for their commentary to be taken in various places, but Murray would take whatever fee was on offer, whereas James would say, £1,000 and it's yours, and the deals would never come off. So <laughs> poor Murray was out of pocket. <laughs> uh, but Ed, let's think back to how Murray used to commentate on Formula One, because 
the challenge for a commentator has, has evolved since since Murray's time. How different is it now? Because Murray commentated in an era before we had on-screen graphics everywhere and live timing available to everyone at home. So he had a very different job, didn't he? Yeah, given that it's still fundamentally the same thing, commentating on a motor race, it's astonishingly different. The flow of information was very limited, a fraction, a tiny fraction of what you get today. So the commentator had to keep on top of the race themselves and also continuously translate that to those watching at home to keep them engaged. And of course, Murray had to do that single-handedly in the in the days before he had a regular co-commentator as well, so even more difficult. And that's why often Murray Walker would be listing the running order, which you wouldn't hear, say, David Croft doing now because it's on the screen. But if you wanted to know where who Brothengatter was running, if he was 12th or 15th or the engine had blown up, which it often did do, that, that's how you found out. Whereas today, if you're Sky Sports F1, even in a, a a predictable race where not much is happening. There's so much to uh, you can do. You've got the the, the co-commentator. You've got the Sky Race Control with Anthony Davidson talking about who's been saying what on onboard radio. Karine Chandock or Ted Kravitz in the pits, or Rachel Brooks will have just interviewed someone in the pen who's retired. So it's a different challenge. Murray Walker had to keep that engagement up without all these outside factors. The challenge today is no simpler. It's it's about managing all that information, which is almost the opposite end of the scale, both incredibly difficult, but just different challenges. And this is why Murray Walker is so important, certainly in the English-speaking world, because, of course, his commentary went out in a lot of different countries, not just the UK. It's why he was so important in terms of building that interest, because even when the races were were relatively dull, and they sometimes were, believe it or not, I know everyone likes to think, Every race was was a spectacular one 30, 40 years ago. They weren't always, but Murray Walker could keep them excited because everything that happened was brilliant. He could point out interesting things that were going on, all kind of keeping it in his head with maybe one person in the commentary box to also talk and perhaps one other person lap charting and flagging up the, the odd thing. Really, really different art and, and absolutely critical to the growth and popularity of Formula One. Without Murray Walker doing that, who knows if the popularity would have grown in the same way. Yeah, I, I think the the key thing for me was that the it's the thing you notice if you go back and watch a classic race now is that Murray seems to be lap charting the race for you the whole way through. But without the graphics, you needed that because back then, especially the, t- the local TV directors would often just follow the lead around for the whole race. So Murray's having to tell a story based on what he might be seeing out of the window if they're there and what he's got on a timing screen. Simon, you obviously knew Murray very well and and you stayed in touch and you saw him at races after he'd stopped commentating. Do you think he would have adapted well to the the way the challenges of commentary have changed since he stopped? Um, Yeah, I think he could have. I mean, you have to remember that although we all loved him as a commentator and the thing Ed just mentioned then about his voice being out around the world, I remember uh, outside the paddock in Australia, there's a, a stand, an autograph stand when the drivers have to walk past between the car park and the paddock and they stop and give autographs. And there was as much clamour for Murray from that stand as there was for any of the drivers. Um, but just, go, I mean, you have to remember, you know, as a young man, 21-year-old, he was a tank captain in, you know, in, in, the, in the army. He was a very successful businessman in the advertising industry. You know, he was a very, very capable human being and able to turn his hand to lots of different things. I think he would have adapted. I mean, he, um, you know, he he said he always said he wanted to stop when you know on his terms rather than having some TV director saying right we don't want you anymore. Um, and he and he did stop on his terms. But it, I mean, he came back. 
think it was the 2009 German Grand Prix, Radio 5 uh, needed a substitute and they wheeled Murray off the bench, um, who'd have been 85 by then. And, um, you know, he, a couple of my friends or colleagues stood in the box and watched him and it, uh, he was still absolutely on, on top of his game. Um, so I'm, you know, I'm sure he, I'm sure he would have adapted. I mean, he did email and stuff, so he wasn't completely, you know, IT illiterate. Um, yeah, I, I think he would have done. And I think if you're talking about adapting, the fundamental quality that made Murray Walker so good was he's what I'd call an inclusive commentator. He draws people in, and that's that's a, a personality trait. He wasn't the star of the show, even though in some ways he was. As far as he was concerned, what was happening was the star of the show, and he just wanted to translate that enthusiasm. It's the same thing we're talking about earlier, why he was so popular in the paddock, because everybody recognised in Murray Walker that same pure enthusiasm for motorsports as they had. It's why he was so popular, and, and that will adapt to any kind of commentary environment. So I have no doubt that that would work. And it's it, it's it just says a lot that he could be so popular and such a star, but at the same time, not ever let that that go to his head or or, or grow a, a massive ego or for that to become problematic. In many ways, it the drama, <clears throat> the drama of motor racing, was just perfectly suited to his his style as well, wasn't it? His personality, because you know, the, I don't know if, if you've ever seen it, the, um, the 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 uh, YouTube clip of him uh, with with Clarkson and uh, wh- wh- who asks him to commentate on a, a snooker match or a, a snooker shot, and it's just fantastic because it's ob- obviously the, the total opposite of snooker commentary, which is all very quiet and library-like and uh, it's just it was just wonderful it just brought home to you exactly why he is natural sort of effervescence is just so perfectly configured for for motor race and, and just the the action and the drama and the unpredictability of it i, I always rather felt that he had the capacity i mean almost watching before i was involved professionally in the sport watching a murray commentary the half an hour highlights program on a Sunday evening. I mean, it was almost like having a race in your living room. I mean, that, that, that his, his, just the way he conveyed it, it was, it was like bursting out of the TV and it was just, it was, you know, it was fantastic. And Simon, uh, Ed mentioned earlier that uh, the Damon Hill commentary, I, I've got a lump in my throat. Murray was well known for having that certain affection and close relationship with the British drivers None so none more so than Damon and Nigel Mansell, who he both commentated on their world championships. But I thought it was telling that he was held in such high regard by their rivals, you know, none more so than Ayrton Senna and Michael Schumacher, for example. So how did how did Murray strike that balance where he seemed to be on the side of the British drivers, but he was so well thought of by the guys they were Going at it against on track every every couple of weeks. It's I think it's because it's stuff we've already touched upon. He, you know, he was happy to. I mean, he really couldn't have given a toss whether he was talking to a seven-time world champion or somebody who, you know, ran a chip shop in a village in South Yorkshire. If you were part of, if you were inside the circuit, you were part of the same band of brothers as he was. You were an enthusiast, and he just treated everybody as equal. And I think with you know, the guy, I mean, Dane and Martin Brundle and so on, you know, they'd have met him when they were coming up through the ranks in Formula 3. And, and at that stage, he was more famous than they were. So, you know, I think, you know, they, I, I don't know, you don't have to ask them, but I'm sure they were quite flattered if Murray came to talk to them. Um, and, you know, he, as his 
I mean, Ed was saying earlier about you know, his voice going out in other countries, English-speaking countries, obviously. It was very, very well known. And he had the... And I think, you know, the, the other drivers... I mean, you know, he built a relationship with some of them who were coming up. Um, and I think they just all respected, you know, that he was a an enthusiast. He was fair. He very rarely... I mean, James Hunt's job was to call Arnu an idiot or portray the an idiot or whatever. Um, Murray was, you know, generally pretty level. Uh, he described what was happening, but he, he tended not to apportion blame or anything. Um, but I think it's just, you know, he, it was that respect he had and the the warm manner he had. You know, it was, it was it, I found it, I, well, I can't imagine anyone would have found it within them not to like him on first acquaintance because he was just such an engaging and affable individual. He, he told me a story a few years ago about... Um, when Ayrton made it into Formula One, he thought he better get his name right, so he asked him. And uh, it, it's obviously correctly pronounced in Portuguese as Ayrton, and which probably isn't a very good Portuguese accent, but anyway. Um, so he started calling him Ayrton, and he said the BBC was absolutely bombarded with complaints. What knows Murray Walker talking about? Why can't he say Ayrton's his name properly? So he went back to calling him Ayrton again, just to for an easier time. And in the next race, he had an interview slot with, with Senna. And the first thing Senna said to him, Murray asked him a question about something. He said, never mind that. How, how come you've gone back to calling me Ayrton instead of Ayrton? So, I mean, how, how would have got back to him? Murray didn't know, but he, um, you know, the, the, there, was a, there was a real engagement between him and all the drivers. And Mark and I were both present um, in Indianapolis in 2001, which is his final race and all the teams got together and organized a you know farewell party for him at the the Williams Paddock Club suite and Tony George from Indianapolis was there and gave him a an original brick from the brickyard. Um and virtually all of the drivers turned up, you know, Michael Schumacher was there, virtually not everyone, but the vast majority of the drivers turned up to you know to join in the celebration. Um, you know, they wouldn't do that for many people. Even Eddie Irvine was there. Yeah, I think yeah. <laughs> I think Eddie Irvine might. He probably had. I don't know. And, you know, and most most of them were there. I know Murray when he got given the. I mean, his, his popularity seemed to come as a bit of a surprise. Let's hear some more of your memories of Murray and what made him so popular with the fans at home. I'll start with Leighton Brown, who says Murray was a constant companion and guide during my motorsport education. His excitement was infectious and knowledge was imparted without you ever feeling lectured. Uh, Danny Hall picks up uh, another quote. He says, there's nothing wrong with that car except that it's on fire. Uh, Everything Racing podcast says, I once recorded myself doing some of Murray's commentary on a karaoke machine and sent him a tape of it in the post. I never expected him to listen to it, let alone reply, but he did just that and sent a handwritten reply saying how much he loved it. Stephen Gates says, my favourite commentary was Suzuka 89. Using fantastic wasn't condoning a collision. He was just an excited fan like us. That's why we loved him. Craig Taylor says, Who else loved hearing him commentate on the old PlayStation games? I'm thankful I began watching F1 with him commentating with Martin Brundle, perhaps the best commentary partnership in any sport. Robin Fisher says, uh, Coming back in his 80s to commentate at the Nürburgring, which Simon mentioned earlier. Uh, It was in 2007 for Five Live. And uh, Robin says, I wonder how many people like me muted the sound on the TV feed to listen to Murray again using the radio commentary. 
And uh, I can tell you that's exactly what I did. Uh, it was brilliant to just listen to Murray one more time. And he didn't sound like a man who'd been out of the game for quite a few years by then, uh, as Simon described. He was still bang on it. And it was great to hear him talk over some of the stars that he hadn't quite got to talk about before he retired. Uh, and Steve Cooper, a former colleague of all of ours at various points, uh, asked a question about the time Murray drove a McLaren in 1983. Steve says, I'd love to know a bit more about that McLaren drive at Silverstone. What was it like? How fast did he go? And did he love it? Well, fortunately, Steve, and congratulations on the new job, by the way, Murray talked about this test in his book. Uh, it came at the invitation of Ron Dennis, who asked him if he'd ever driven an F1 car. And when Murray said no, he said, would you like to? So Murray drove Nicky Lauda's car during the lunch break of a busy tyre test where pretty much all of the teams were in attendance. The first thing that's of minor interest, I think, other than the fact that Murray fit into a pair of Nicky Lauda's overalls, is that in the TV footage of this test, you see Murray famously stall the car when he's trying to get away. Apparently, that was his second getaway. And when he would pulled away for his installation lap before that, he'd got away fine. Um, so the TV editors stitched him up a little bit there. Uh, but to answer some more of the question, Murray wrote that he loved every second of it. And he said he was concentrating so hard that he missed the pit board, calling him into the pits three times. Murray said the car was so good that it wasn't difficult to drive, but he made sure to stay within its limits. And he said he was on cloud nine afterwards. As for how fast he went, he tells a story where John Watson, McLaren's other driver at the time, asked him what speed he got up to on the hangar straight. Murray said, I don't know, John, they don't have speedometers. I thought you knew that. <laughs> Watson confirmed that he did know that uh, and then asked Murray how many rev what revs he got up to and which gear he was in. When Murray said he got up to 9,000 RPM in top gear, Watson told him that was 150 miles per hour, to which Murray said, I certainly wouldn't have been doing that if I'd realised how fast it was, but in a thoroughbred like that McLaren, it's very easy to get there before you know where you are. He said he was immensely indebted to Ron Dennis for that day, and he became even more so in 1998 when McLaren put him in their state-of-the-art two-seater with his new ITV commentary partner, Martin Brundle, behind the wheel. We had Martin briefly mentioned earlier, Mark, so let's, let's look at that partnership, Murray's final commentary partnership in F1. How good were Murray Walker and Martin Brundle together in the commentary box? Oh, they were terrific. Um, in a, in a quite a different way from Murray and James, um, the the relationship was immediately um, warm. Anyway, they 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 got on very well personally. Anyway, um, but there was more overlap, I think, um, because Martin Martin himself is a very good colour commentator as as well as you know being having the insight of an ex Formula One driver, um, and so there was it was a more much more of a conversation uh, uh, rather than a you know in, in Murray dominating it with just interjections from James it was um it was a more equal um partnership really and it was uh i think um you you could you could feel the uh the 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 affection that each had for, for the other um quite clearly and uh yeah it was just unstressed and just very natural seeming and it uh yeah it, it endured for a very long time and of course we talked about how james hunt didn't quite share the the murray walker broadcast professionalism but of course brundle very very much did and does 
he was very well prepared, very thorough, rigorous. So there was that professional respect there as well. And I think obviously Brundle had got involved with commentary some some years before he started doing it full time, even while he was doing F1. So obviously he saw that as a as a future. So I imagine Murray also well, he did see a kind of kindred spirit and and a, and a fellow professional as well as an ex-driver in Martin Brundle. And Murray retired from his full-time F1 commentary role at the end of 2001. He'd originally wanted to stop at the end of 2000, but ITV convinced him to stay on for a farewell tour to give it and to also give ITV more time to find a replacement. So Murray skipped some races in 2001, finishing up, as we mentioned earlier, with the US Grand Prix at Indianapolis. Speaking about his thought process in 2000, Murray wrote in his book, I was convinced that in the not too distant future, for either mental or physical reasons, my competence would start to fade and I wouldn't be able to keep up. I was appalled by the thought of losing my edge. Like Jackie Stewart, I'd always resolved to stop when I felt I was still at the top of the tree rather than tumbling down it. My pride was at stake. Better to stop a little too soon than a little too late. Now, Mark, we've mentioned a few times that Murray did keep attending races. He did various bits of work in F1 after he stopped commentating full time. But in terms of stopping while he was still at the top of his game and not maybe losing his edge before he called it a day, do you think he he got that timing right? Yeah, although I don't think um, his competence actually suffered, um, as as we've discussed in in the years ahead. But certainly the physical toil um, of, you know, even then it was getting towards um you know 18 19 races a, a year um and it was moving more and more away from europe and, and, and the long haul flights um you know as you're getting on a bit um i'm sure that would have become a factor and yeah he called it absolutely on his own terms and i think that was the important thing he he decided when he was stopping and um you know he they even they even asked him to to do an, an extra year, so I think that says that he was still very much um, at the at the top of his game, and he, he had that nice situation where he could just dip in and out of it um, in, in the in the future years, and um, he was still very much part of the scene even when he stopped doing it full time. That was the great thing that he could still be involved, and he'd still even occasionally turn up doing the odd commentary. I can remember Silverstone. Not so long ago, maybe 2011. I can remember hearing him on, I think, on Five Live, or uh, I can't remember what's about it on in the in the media centre. And it was, he still had it. It was just great to hear, and he he he'd turn up doing promotional things, and so he could still stay involved, which I guess was the was the perfect balance for him in that he was still a part of it, but in a way that meant that he wasn't going to suffer from from any decline. But amazing how how long he did go on for. We all know how demanding it is to travel to all the races even in those days before it was so much long haul. So the fact that that enthusiasm kept him going for so long, and he'd still be doing it, <laughs> he'd still be doing it now if if time hadn't caught up with him, as, as it does with uh, with everyone, such is that just depth of, of passion. And I think the most amazing thing is that that never seemed to fade, did it? It was still, still there, whatever he was doing later on, whether it was a a random guest commentary or a promotional thing for Honda or an F1 racing interview or whatever, he'd put that same passion and determination and professionalism into it, which is just absolutely a, a testament to, to the way he did things. I recall that, um, you know, in his post-retirement years, he, he got a very lucrative contract uh, with Honda to talk with their guests at, um, at, at Grand Prix. 
and um, it was very much the um, the talk of the paddock, just how much Honda had paid for the privilege of, of having them. And um, Simon and I were gen gently taking the, the mick out of him uh, about it, and he just he just sort of give a wry little little giggle about it, and I said, "No, no, I think what you what you've heard, guys, is, is greatly exaggerated. I, I'm I'm hardly I'm hardly making anything." I said, "So what? You you doing it for your, for charity? It's a sort of charitable work." Yes, yes. Let's call it that. It's charitable work. Talk about the physical side, mentally. I mean, the last interview I did with him was a podcast in summer 2019 after the Royal Automobile Club named one of its rooms after him. And um, at that stage, I mean, his his mind was absolutely tack sharp. His powers of recall were fantastic. Uh, but physically, he was he was struggling to get around with a couple of walking sticks. And, he, you know, you, you could see how physically frail he'd become. But as I say, north of his shoulders, he was incredibly strong. And as a footnote to that particular day, there was a step up into the Murray Walker room, which he, aged 94, managed to clear without any problem, whereas me in my 50s tripped over it and fell. Um, as you said at the beginning, I mean, I'm, I am very sad that, you know, I can't just pick up the phone and pick his brains about the 1949 British Grand Prix or something anymore, but it's an amazing life, huge amount packed into it, and, you know, it's one of those that really, really, really merits celebration above all else. Yeah, it was certainly a life well lived, and uh, I think Murray... Murray made the most of, of every every opportunity that he got and he made a lot of things happen and it's a truly, truly inspirational, I think. You know, I, I, we're all of, of different ages and so are our listeners, but there'll be lots of people who were drawn to this sport as much about the, the heroes that were on the screen as they were the man they were listening to and being educated by, as one of our listeners mentioned earlier. Uh, Murray brought all of that to Formula One and and I'm as grateful as... Uh, any anyone else for that because it was a huge part of my my childhood and one time I did have to help Murray out with uh, I think it was a subscription his autosport website subscription or something and uh, I made a point when it was all done I made a point of saying to him uh, just thank you so much for being the being the voice of of my childhood uh, a very special man and as I said we wanted it is a sad occasion as Simon mentioned but we wanted um, to celebrate Murray today and I think that's I would hope that's the way he would want people to look back on on his incredible life. Now, we could talk about Murray forever. As I said earlier, we've barely scratched the surface. Uh, the word legend is thrown around all too easily these days, certainly in sport. But every now and then, someone comes along who's truly deserving of that title, and Murray Walker was certainly that. To so many people, he meant as much as the superstar drivers he was commentating on. And I think he helped generations of fans fall in love with this sport, educating and entertaining us along the way. Bring Back V10s will continue to celebrate this era that was defined by Murray's commentary for many more years to come. And we will keep sneaking in the occasional commentary clip for those famous moments where Murray's words can do far more justice to them than anything we could possibly say. The only thing left to say as we bring this tribute episode to an end, I believe, is quite simply... Murray Walker, thank you. <laughs>